Okay, hi, my name's Oren, if I haven't met you before, and it's great to have a chat with you tonight. Um, tonight, we are going, well, tonight's sermon actually started about, it was going to be about the temptations of Christ. And the more I studied the temptations, read upon it, uh, researched it, the more I realised we can't just look at the temptations of Christ in isolation. We can't just look at it by itself. Because this is a, a very significant period of Jesus' life where he overcome three very difficult trials. And for him to have the strength to overcome these trials, there was a great time of preparation beforehand. In fact, the whole 30 years of his life leading up to that time. However, this, these 30 years, we have very little information about in Scripture or history. And so this is an anonymous time of Jesus' life. And so what, turn, what was going to be a sermon about the temptations of Christ is now going to be a two-part sermon. We're not even going to get, get to the temptations tonight. We're going to be looking at the anonymous season of Jesus' life before his baptism. And then in a few weeks' time, we're going to do part two, actually, then get to the temptations and actually unpack them a lot more there. And so tonight's sermon is going to be based off something we don't have much scripture on at all. So wish me luck. <laughs> this actually, this picture up here was the original picture I was going to use for the temptations of Christ. This is actually a picture of the Judean desert where Jesus actually spent his time in the wilderness. Uh, we don't know exactly which cave and which mountain he uh, spent his time on. We'll never actually know that. But it's so cool that, you know, we see, read about this stuff in Scripture and we can still go and visit places like that just like today. So, let me start with reading about uh, Jesus' baptism and then we'll get into breaking it down a bit. So, if we... Yep, thank you. Okay, so this is from Matthew. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptised by John. But John tried to deter him, saying... I need to be baptised by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfil all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptised, he went up out of the water, and that moment heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my Son, whom I love with him I am well pleased. And then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is a really cool piece of Scripture because this is one of the only places in the whole Bible where both, all uh, God, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus all come together as one. The big three show up. Jesus being baptised, the Spirit coming down as a dove, and God speaking over him. And so this is obviously a significant part of the Bible. And so after this, Jesus was led, as it says, by the Spirit out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil and be tested more than every, any average human would be. However, like I said, prior to this, we know almost nothing about Jesus. We know about his birth in Bethlehem. We get a few verses about him getting separated from Mary and Joseph and then finding him later in the temple talking to the teachers of the law. However, other than that, there's almost nothing on him. And so Jesus' ministry lasted just three short years, just three years. And his life up to then was 30 years. So he fits very neatly into the analogy we like to use of the iceberg, the, 
90% under the surface and that small 10% right above the surface that we see. Yet that small 10% in that time, Jesus changed the world more than anyone else ever has. There's been more songs written about Jesus than anybody else in history. More works of art painted about Jesus. More books written about Jesus. Even the way we measure our time, BC and AD, is measured of Jesus' life. Just from these three short years. So obviously God was with him in the spirit and his influence working out through the world. But that period before his ministry holds immense significance as well. We also find ourselves in these anonymous seasons, don't we? We find ourselves, um, we might be busy at one point and then something happens, we lose something. And then we find ourselves in this period of limbo, in this liminal space that we're not sure what to make of it. So we might have just lost a job and we haven't yet found another job and we're trying to work out what, what, what does this mean? What does my life look like now? What I used to dedicate at least 40 hours a week to is now no longer there. Maybe we're between projects and something that was keeping us so busy at one point is now finished up. And we're trying to work out, you know, what direction do we head in now? Maybe we're between relationships. And we're now trying to work out what does it mean for me to be a single person now? What does that look like for me? And how do I find my own identity again? Maybe we've just become a parent. Some of us have gone through that. And our lives might have been very busy, especially if we were a first-time parent. Before then, our so, you know, we have social lives... We uh, can go out for dinner at the drop of a hat. Someone calls up, say, hey, you want to come in, you know, come for a drink? Yeah, great, I'll be there in a few minutes. You can't do that when you've got a kid. Now, all of a sudden, you're not speaking to your friends as much anymore, except, you know, seeing a few, you know, uh, feeds across Facebook and things like that. You're not uh, going out for dinners. You're, you're probably have stopped work as well. All that filled up the hours in your life when you have a child kind of comes to a grinding halt and then all of your energy and effort is spent keeping this little pink bundle of joy alive and that could take a lot of effort and you don't know what to make of yourself during those times. But we get itchy feet and we're tempted just to jump the gun in these anonymous seasons just to try and keep ourselves busy somehow, in some way. And so looking back at Jesus, when he was tested by the devil... How did he get that strength? Where did he get that strength from? Now, yes, we can probably say God snapped his fingers, maybe at the baptism, and gave Jesus all the power and wisdom and courage and strength and self-control he needed to pass those temptations and everything else the world threw at him up until the, uh, the cross. But that's not usually how God works, is it? In my experience, when God has done something miraculous, it's still gone through a lot of natural means. Uh, for example, we've got, some, we've got a lot of YWAMers that come here to this church. And a lot of you actually rely on donations to pay for your everyday living expenses and your mission trips and all those kind of things. But I'm willing to bet every time you've seen money miraculously come your way to fund something, it hasn't just been a bag of money materialises in front of you in your budget. That would be great if it did. But chances are somebody maybe has sold a house or come into an inheritance or some money has come from somewhere and they've given to you in good faith. That, in my experience, is more how God works than just making things happen like that. If Jesus was just automatically everything we need, uh, he, he needed to be straight up then, then why was he born to start with? Why did he have to live a life? I believe, yes, he was open to God's spirit, more receptive to everything that God was doing in his life. Absolutely, being the son of God, he would have to be. But 
I think it's something that he learnt over these 30 years of his life and it's something that inside of him that he nurtured, that he cared for, that he grew to the point where it was finally time for him to enter his ministry. And so during these anonymous seasons, we need to wait and Jesus waited but we have to get good at waiting and we have to wait the right way. There is a great Hebrew word for waiting. It's called kovar. Kovar. Sounds like guava. Kovar. And this means to wait. But just like many other Hebrew words, this, just to say it just means to wait, is an oversimplification. Many of these words have a rich amount of depth and foresight to them as well and what they actually mean. And so kovar actually is derived from the word they use to actually create rope. And so the rope maker will take a single strand, no thicker than a human hair, and twist it together with another strand, and then add a third, and a fourth, and so on and so forth. And over time, this, these strands turn to a rope. And what was so easily broken by itself, the combination of these strands come together and make a thick, a strong rope, something that can tie a ship to a wharf and not let it sail away. And just like the rope maker slowly adds these strands to the rope, as we wait, we wait in kovar, we wait the right way, we're waiting on God, we wait with expectant hearts, faithfully, with our eyes continually turned towards God. We might not be doing much externally, but inside there's a whole lot happening. How we wait makes a massive difference um, when it comes to how we outwork our giftings and, um, and what Jesus and God has asked us to do in our lives and in our ministries. Another great word uh, from Hebrew is menuha. I'm not going to say what this one sounds like. <laughs> menuha. Menuha is to rest. And that's something that is so good for us to know, especially in this day and age. We are, are so busy we busy ourselves so much that we can work 24 hours a day if we want to. I was just talking to Matt. You said you just did seven days straight. You worked all weekend as well. It's so easy to keep ourselves busy. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. God appreciates production. He appreciates creation. But he also appreciates rest as well. And so you look at the creation story. Six days, God created the entire universe. And on the seventh day, the Sabbath, he rested. But why did he rest? Was it he was tired? He just created the entire universe. Well, he's God. He's eternal. He doesn't get tired. He rested to show us that it's good for us to rest as well. And that's what manuhar is. It is that rest to appreciate creation. Because the Jews would believe that creation is never complete until you actually take the time to appreciate it. And that is so important. Uh, Fung actually has um, a friend from Mother's Group. Um, we've known for quite some time. And her and her husband, they don't actually have a job per se. Their income comes from uh, buying an old run-down house. They move in, kids and all. They renovate it while they're living in it. And then once it's nice and schmick, they sell it off and then use the money to go buy another old house, move in, renovate it, and then sell it off again. And it's this constant cycle. For me, if I was to do that, that would be lacking some manure. I would want to live in that house for probably a good year or two when it's nice and clean and new and there's not, you know, leaking taps or PowerPoints that don't work or lights that are hanging down from the ceiling. I've done it once. I don't want to do it again. 
appreciating creation, taking that time for rest is really important. We don't need to, sometimes we put too much value on perpetual busyness. But the thing is, God doesn't value perpetual busyness. He values that rhythm, that balance in our lives as well. And so in these anonymous seasons, we don't need to feel bad for resting. Sometimes it's, it's exactly what we need. We are like a child in the womb. We are still, we are hidden, but there we are being refreshed, we are being strengthened, we are growing, we are resting. And I love this quote. These periods may be unapplauded, but they are definitely not unproductive. These periods are unapplauded, but not unproductive. And that's really important for us to see. This works very much in sync with God's timing. And it's a, it's a truth that a lot of us do struggle with, God's timing. Because it sounds, feels like his timing is a lot longer than ours. We look at the scripture for a lot of uh, examples. So David, when he was just a boy, Samuel anointed him to be the next king of Israel. But it will be a long, long time before he would actually wear the crown. And when Saul actually passed away, it wasn't, the crown wasn't automatically given to David. He still actually had to fight for it. Sarah was prophesied she would give birth to a baby boy, but it was going to be 25 years until she actually gave birth to Isaac. Joseph had a dream that... I had a dream. Joseph had a dream that he would... uh, that his family would bow down before him. But it was going to be 20 years before he actually led his family in Egypt. Moses first tried to save... Uh, Israelite slave from a Roman, uh, from, a Roman, from an Egyptian slave driver. It wasn't going to be until 40 years later that he would actually take all of Israel out of Egypt and set them free. Esther waited almost 25 years to actually come and stand in for her people. And Paul waited more than 10 years after his spiritual encounter on the road to Damascus before he was actually commissioned by the church. God's time can be a long time. And this can actually sound discouraging, can't I just have to wait decades for God to work in my life? Well, maybe, but I think, the, I think the thing to take out here is that the period of the anonymous times that we go through is in relation to the significance of the following season that we will then go through. And chances are none of us are going to be probably liberating an entire nation from slavery within our lifetimes. We might, and you might have a big anonymous season coming up, but... There's a chance that it's a shorter period of time. We need to practice that kova, enjoy the manuha, and then move forwards with that as well. But more importantly, it's about waiting on God, trusting on God, and putting our faith in Him. When we want it done in our time, we are trying to control it. We are saying it's going to be by my power, this will be done, by my will, this will be done. By waiting on God, we are putting all of that in God's hands and taking it off ourselves as well. And if we are moving with God, if we're moving with our spirit, then that is the right rhythm to be doing this with as well. We get impatient with God's pauses. They do feel like a waste of time. Sometimes these pauses come from some kind of grief. Something's happened. A loved one has passed away some kind of crisis has happened in your life, and then you enter into this period of hiddenness, of of stillness, whether you actually enjoy it or not. Um, But these still times allow us to actually process these times of crisis as well. Um, Thinking back from my own experience uh, through my job, I've had plenty of times of crisis. Uh, Just to share one with you, 
this isn't probably the worst one, but it's probably, it's, it's one that's a little bit more entertaining, not so much of a sob story. So I thought I'd share this one with you. This is the story of when I did my first uh, solo manager shift. Yeah, I work in hotels, if you don't know, um, at, at a hotel. Uh, previous to that, I'd been a manager, but there's already been a more senior manager on. This is the first time I was going solo as my senior person in the building, and I was only about 21 at the time. So I was still quite young, um, a bit naive, didn't really know what I was in for, and it was a Saturday night. And it was probably about midway through the, the shift, it was about 7, 8 o'clock at night, and most people had checked into the hotel, so that was great. The restaurant was in full swing, fantastic, and their bar was going great, there were no intoxication issues or anything like that, fantastic. So a little young Oren, my voice was still breaking, still had a bit of acne, <laughs> staying in the hotel foyer going, great, fantastic shift, I'm doing really well, pat on the back, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> That's probably what did it. So, this is what's happened. <laughs> uh, there were two couples uh, that knew each other that were staying in the hotel, and they were down, there was a bar just outside the hotel, and, and they were in the bar having a great time. Then, for some reason, I still don't know why, the girl from one couple, the guy from the other couple, decided to go back up to the hotel room and do whatever they felt like doing. The woman from the other couple goes up, finds them, a massive fight breaks out in the, in the corridor of, of the hotel, the guy, not a very brave man, goes running out of the room completely naked, down the corridor, and he's trying to find somewhere to hide. Every door, like hotel doors lock from the outside, so he just can't walk in. So he's trying all doors, he can't find any that are open. The only door that is open is the door to the kids club, which is on the same level. Full swing, about 30 kids, childcare workers, naked guy goes running in. Screams of the kids echoing down the corridor. Ah, meanwhile, I'm downstairs going, hey, great shift. <laughs> and then it was like this tsunami of angry parents just came and they found out when I was the most senior manager in the hotel at the time, I got shreds torn off me. I was berated. I was told my child's been scarred for life. I'm going to send the psychology bills to you. I'm going to take you to a current affair. I'm going to get you fired. It was every, they threw everything at me. And I remember, yeah, I think I was in shock. <laughs> I remember I was just kind of numb on the inside. But in, as best I could, I apologised profusely. It wasn't really my fault. <laughs> but I still had to apologise and take down statements, all the details about how bad a person I was, and say, OK, I'll, I'll pass this on to the general manager, our legal team. We'll do whatever we need to do to, to make, make this right. Fortunately... I had days off the next couple of days. And I remember for the rest of that shift, I was still just numb. I was just kind of like getting through it. I was just like, you know, just reeling after what had just happened. But those days that came after that, I remember it was almost like this time of almost like grief, like, like it was this, this negative energy almost coming out of me. I was just shaking. I was having trouble sleeping. I had no appetite. And I just had to let all this kind of stuff out of me before I actually felt like my normal self Again, now I can laugh about it. It's hilarious now. <laughs> but then it was horrible. And if I didn't have those days off afterwards, who knows how long I could keep that stuff bottled up inside of me. And the same thing. So these anonymous seasons, these seasons of stillness, of hiddenness, give us the time to process things like this that we go through, this crisis, this negative stuff that we can bottle up inside of us so well. And so we experience pain. And sometimes we wonder, does God really understand the pain that we're going through? 
when a loved one passed away, when a child maybe passed away? Can, does God really get that? There's a great verse that talks about Jesus and his experience with sin. If you just go to the next slide. Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathise with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. This is a great verse. He did not sin. He was tempted in every way. Brian McLaren expounds on this verse greatly, and I'm just paraphrasing here, but he says, you don't find out how strong something is by giving into it. You don't find out how strong the wind is by lying down. You don't find out how strong an army is by surrendering. And so Jesus, being the only one, the only one of us who has never, ever given in to sin, is the only one that truly understands the, the bite sin can have, the pain it can cause, the wonders of the temptations it can bring about. Jesus understands sin. He understands our pain better than we can even do so. Isn't it good that we have a God that does understand that pain, a relatable God through Jesus that has experienced this but has won these battles for us? During these anonymous seasons, we get impatient. And just like kids in the back of the car, we are asking, are we there yet? Are we there yet, God? Are we there yet? I just want to get to the end of this season and just start and get back to doing what I was doing. I want to get back on my feet, get back on the bike, get back on the bandwagon, get back on whatever you want to get. (laughs) And start being productive again. Start outworking, get back in the spotlight, start doing something that you feel like you're actually doing something worthwhile with your life. But a good question is, what is there for you? What is there? What does it look like? Is it some kind of answer to prayer, uh, a fulfillment of a prophecy, some kind of explanation? Maybe some kind of insight into the future. Maybe it's just getting married. You've just, I've been single for so long, I just want to have that significant other person. Then I'll be a real adult. <laughs> that doesn't change once you get married, trust me. <laughs> for Jesus, his there moment was very simple. It was when he got baptised and God said, this is my son whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. It's something so simple. It wasn't God saying, this is Jesus, you have to do whatever he says, he's king of the universe, this is God incarnate. It wasn't anything like that. It was just, this is my son, and I love him. And the interesting thing about that is, God said this about Jesus before he actually done anything that qualified him as a saviour. He hadn't done any miracles up to that point. He hadn't Uh, saved anyone, he hasn't saved the universe, he hasn't died for our sins or anything like that. It was at the very beginning of his ministry. Yet this is my son who I'm pleased with. Isn't it great? And so we can take from that, God loves us whether or not we even find a way out of our anonymous season. If we don't do anything else with the rest of our lives, God will still love us and cherish us and be pleased with us as well. Maybe that's all we need to hear. Maybe, it's, maybe we need to realise that God's praise, God's love of us is enough. And that word enough is such a good word. Is God enough for us? I've got two young kids and they love to sing, dance, put on plays and shows and make food out of Play-Doh for me to buy and they get disappointed when I don't really eat it, all that kind of stuff. And they love to put on little shows and they don't want anyone else in the audience except for Fung and I. They put on little shows for us. And our praise, our admiration of them is enough for them. 
And it's so nice to be enough. At this stage, we are enough. We're not always going to be enough. And that's, that's a little bit sad, but it's true. Soon or later, they're going to want to get the praise from their friends and then maybe their work colleagues or a boss or that significant other that I let them marry one day down the track. <laughs> but at the moment, we are enough. Do you think God feels like we are enough for him? Or are we out there trying to seek the praise of everyone else out there when we already have God's praise and affirmation already? The decisions Jesus made in the desert were the results of the choices he made before he was in the desert. In the hidden place over the years, Jesus' choices clustered and created momentum that is revealed through the decisions he made in his public ministry. Just go to the next one, please, and I love this quote as well. Today's decisions foreshadows tomorrow's challenges and reflect yesterday's choices. Today's decisions foreshadow tomorrow's challenges and reflect yesterday's choices. What this says is every period of our life that we're going through, whether we're in the spotlight or we're completely hidden, is important. A great analogy for this is when we look at the banquets at a wedding. We've all been to weddings before. You go to a Western, uh, Western wedding and you get the entree. It might be a, you know, a salad or a prawn cocktail or something like that. But what I'm really hanging out for is that steak, that big, juicy steak. I'm just going to get through this salad but I've got my eyes fixed on a steak. And if for some reason the waiter puts chicken in front of me, I'm going to be going, use my dessert to negotiate <laughs> to get that steak. <laughs> it's great that my wife's a vegetarian because I always get her steak. <laughs> and so we kind of feel like sometimes our anonymous season is like that. It's like the entree, but the real game is the next season to come. But think of it like this. Rather than a Western wedding, think of it maybe like an Asian wedding. Who's been to an Asian wedding before? Oh, there's like 15, 20 courses. It's, most of it's seafood. Most of it's meat. That's <laughs> great. But there's a lot of seafood. So you've got your ginger and shallot fish. You've got your soft-shell crab. You've got your lobster, abalone. Uh, you've got your sea cucumber, which is a little bit weird. You've got the outlawed shark fin soup that we're not allowed to have anymore. So I think it's just powdered stuff now. <laughs> but in an Asian banquet, not one meal is more important than the other. Every single one is to be celebrated in its own right. You're not trying to get through the lobster to get to the crab. You're enjoying the lobster and the crab and trying to have enough room left in your stomach for the other 15 courses that are still yet to come. That is how we should be looking at the, the areas, the seasons of our life. Just because I'm not in spotlight now, just because I'm not doing what I feel I should be doing, doesn't mean that this is not important. As it says up there, what we do in these anonymous seasons, how well we practice quavar will dictate how well we manage the next seasons to come. Sometimes one of the biggest things, though, we grow inside of us is not character, it's not self-control, but it is bitterness. When I, some of you may know, a few years ago, I, um, I was working in Sydney, and I used to talk to, I ran different management training sessions for the different hotels, and I would talk to hundreds of people every week, and then all of a sudden, for reasons completely out of my control, it all came to a crashing halt, and I found myself then in an office by myself, talking to no one. And I was thinking, what happened? <laughs> I think I'm still just on the outside of that anonymous season at the moment. God has since shown me there's, there's a lot of good reasons why things had to stop, um, and that's a whole other sermon I think that can be. <laughs> but in the end, I could see God's hand on it. But at the time, I, was, I felt shattered. My ego had taken a massive hit. I didn't know what, what to make of it. 
And I did feel bitter. I felt very bitter towards the, the people that ended up making that decision. It was nothing to actually do with me and my performance or anything. It was, compl- like I said, it was uh, reasons outside of my circle of influence. And so bitterness is something we need to guard ourselves against. Again, let's look at Jesus. Jesus had 30 years of hiddenness. And then finally, he gets his there moment. He gets baptised, Spirit of God comes down, I'm pleased with you. If I was Jesus, I'd be thinking, yes, finally here, ministry's going to start, going to save the world. Awesome. But what does God do? No, out to the desert, 40 days, you're off for a test. I'd be like, what? What was the last 30 years? Wasn't that a test? But no, what's it say? At the, uh, if you just go right back to the uh, Bible verse, the last one says, Jesus was led by the Spirit. He was just simply led. He didn't go begrudgingly. He wasn't dragged out there. He was just simply led by the Spirit. Again, faithfulness, trusting in God's timing. Jesus showed amazing self-control. And self-control, like so many other things we build in these kovar moments, it's not a gift. It's not something that we just get straight away. It's something that is grown. It is a fruit that can only be grown over time, like character is. We need to see hiddenness as a gift. Many people have collapsed under the pressure of too much applause, too much authority, and too little self-control. You look at so many of the celebrities, politicians, so many people in the spotlight that just, their lives just seem to fall apart than in the public eye. You look at, uh, one of my favourite bands is the Foo Fighters. And Dave Grohl, the lead singer of the Foo Fighters, they did a documentary going back a few years ago, and he's talking about the creation of the Foo Fighters over the last 20 years. And Dave Grohl used to be the drummer in the band Nirvana, which was the biggest grunge band of not just the 90s, of all time. And it probably will be because grunge is dead now. And so, <laughs> um, and so when Dave started the Foo Fighters, he was already in the spotlight. And so all the usual stuff that bands go through before they actually get famous was done on the stage. It was written about in Rolling Stones and the papers and all that kind of stuff. So the, the fights I'd have within the band, people leaving, people coming, the... The, thing, the stupid things that band members get up to with enjoyment stuff, all that stuff <laughs> was done in public. And he talks about how embarrassing it was for him. It wasn't done in hiddenness, it was done centre stage. And so we need to see our hiddenness is a gift. Embrace it while we can. And my last point is Jesus embraced the wilderness and he often returned there. You think after being 30 years hidden, before his ministry started, you can imagine young Jesus, as he's starting to realise he actually has the power in him of God to actually change the world. Can you imagine the amount of sick people he walked past thinking, there's something in me that can help this person, but it's not my time yet. There's something in me, I can, I can heal this person of leprosy. I could bring this mourning mother's child back, but I can't do that because it's not my time yet. You think he'll be over that wilderness, he'll be sick of it. But what do we find Jesus doing? Time and time after again, as the crowds got bigger, as his influence grew, he retreated to those quiet places, those hidden places, to recharge, to spend time with God, to build back up, again, to practice kovar. He used that to keep his ministry going all the way through to the cross. He would escape when he can. The wilderness becomes, became something he embraced and became part of him. It probably also tells us Jesus was an introvert, <laughs> which is great, because I feel very much the same way. Sometimes it's nice just to get away from it all. But we need to embrace it and not hate the wilderness 
not be bitter against it, but to enjoy it and see its potential and see it as a gift. And so to sum up, the anonymous season allows us to grow our fruit. It gives us self-control, wisdom, understanding, patience. It helps us refine our character. It protects us. It allows us to process those crisis moments that we go through. It teaches us to appreciate God's timing. God is never late and he never ever has to make up for lost time. We learn that God is good enough as well. And so how well do we wait? How well do we practice Korvah? This is something that I think that we all go through and if you haven't yet, then we absolutely will. If any of this has resounded with you uh, tonight, if, if this is something that you want to read more about, then I'm actually going to do a quick little book plug. This book is actually called Anonymous and this actually was a good influence of, um, for this sermon tonight plus a lot of other stuff as well. But the good thing I loved about this book was the chapters are only two or three pages long. And so if you're like me and you've got kids and demand your attention every 10 minutes, you can normally knock out you know, two or three pages within that time and actually get through as well. And it goes through a lot of this stuff in a lot of detail as well. So this is a great book. I think this is something that we can all absolutely relate to because it's something that we all go through with the seasons of our lives. So normally I'll end the sermon in prayer, but rather than just me pray, what I want us to do actually is together is to pray with the people around us as well. So if you feel like you have been walking through the fog for a long time, if you feel like you're getting impatient with God's timing, if you're not sure where to turn, if you're just waiting to get back, in, back on the horse, back on your feet, back on all of those other things as well, talk to the people around you. Let's just have some time in prayer and ministry together and enjoy. I'm more than happy to talk more about this later if you like. You can borrow my copy of this book. If you don't want to buy it, I'm sure it's available on audiobook as well. But yeah, let's have some great time in prayer. Enjoy the rest of the night. Cool. Thanks, guys.